Thank you, Nathaniel. Are you laughing at me? <laughs> Last person to stop clapping. Excellent. My biggest fan. Great. Well, the other thing I just said about this morning, and would, uh, if you weren't there this morning, just to encourage and remind you, and is that the Advanced Global Conference is going to be in Bournemouth in the first week of May, and it's a great chance for us to get involved and to uh, connect with people from around the world. And we particularly like people from Gateway to serve. And if anybody's got spare rooms in their houses to offer to international delegates, that'd be really helpful as well. So if you can uh, follow the link on the mailer and sign up to serve at the event or to offer a bedroom, that'd be amazing. Great way for us to connect with people from around the world. Okay, Pete was with us this morning and uh, talking on the story of Abraham and Isaac, a bit of an interlude in our A House for My Name series. And I want to kind of bring another bit of an interlude kind of going back in the story. So where we've got so far in our series is we, last September, started in Genesis, talking about the three-story house that God was building, which we see there in the creation story of the skies and the earth and the sea. And there's this picture of how God is building a place where he's going to dwell with his people. Toby, can you just put me down a little bit more? I feel very loud to myself. Thank you. Um, and where we got to... Uh, Nathaniel finished off week four last was just getting up to the story in Samuel, where Samuel, who's going to be the great prophet leader of Israel before a king is appointed, that's the period of history we've, co- we've covered. So uh, Pete and I are kind of going back and filling in some of the gaps. And, and the thing I just wanted to spend some time in is the story in Genesis 30. And I haven't got slides. I'd like you to grab a physical Bible if you haven't got one. It's on page 32 in these Bibles. Actually going to start at the end of uh, Genesis 29. Thanks, handsome out guys. And uh, what, what we see in the, in the creation story, the, the first story in Genesis is this picture of fruitfulness of the earth being filled, that God has made the earth be fruitful. And where we get to at the beginning of the story of Samuel is the birth of Samuel, which is a story about... Uh, Samuel's mother Hannah having this great desire for a child. It gets about fruitfulness. And the story in Genesis 30 also connects to that theme of fruitfulness. And it's a rather strange story in some ways. And if you're doing community Bible reading with us, you'd have read this chapter recently. And I was quite struck by it again as I read it the other week and uh, just wanted to share some things from it. So, Genesis chapter 29, verse 31. Going to read from there. When the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he enabled her to conceive, but Rachel remained childless. Remember, Jacob has got married to these two sisters Rachel, the younger, who he loved, and Leah, the older one, who he didn't want, but got tricked into marrying. Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben, which means he has seen my misery. For she said, It is because the Lord has seen my misery. Surely, surely my husband will love me now. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, Because the Lord heard that I am not loved, he gave me this one too. So she named him Simeon, which means one who hears. Again she conceived, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, Now at last my husband will become attached to me, because I have borne him three sons. So he named, she named him Levi, which sounds like the Hebrew for attached. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, This time I will praise the Lord. So she named him Judah, which sounds like praise. Then she stopped having children. 
When Rachel saw that she was not bearing Jacob any children, she became jealous of her sister. So she said to Jacob, give me children or I'll die. Jacob became angry with her and said, am I in the place of God who has kept you from having children? Then she said, here is Bilhah, my servant, sleep with her so that she can bear children for me and I too can build a family through her. So she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife. Jacob slept with her and she became pregnant and bore him a son. Then Rachel said, God has vindicated me. He has listened to my plea and given me a son. Because of this, she named him Dan, which means he is vindicated. Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, I have had a great struggle with my sister and I have won. So she named him Naphtali, which means my struggle. When Leah saw that she had stopped having children, she took her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son. Then Leah said, what good fortune. So she named him Gad, which means good fortune or a troop. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son. Then Leah said, how happy I am. The women will call me happy. So she named him Asher, which means happy. During wheat harvest... Reuben went out into the fields and found some mandrake plants, which he brought to his mother Leah. Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, wasn't it enough that you took away my husband? Will you take my son's mandrakes too? Very well, Rachel said, he can sleep with you tonight in return for your son's mandrakes. So when Jacob came in from the fields that evening, Leah went out to meet him. You must sleep with me. I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he slept with her that night. God listened to Leah, and she became pregnant and bore Jacob a fifth son. Then Leah said, God has rewarded me for giving my servant to my husband. So she named him Issachar, which sounds like rewards. Leah conceived again and bore Jacob a sixth son. And Leah said, God has presented me with a precious gift. This time my husband will treat me with honor because I have borne him six sons. So she named him Zebulun, which means honor. Some time later, she gave birth to a daughter and named her Dinah. Then God remembered Rachel. He listened to her and enabled her to conceive. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son and said, God has taken away my disgrace. She named him Joseph, which means may he add, and said, may the Lord add to me another son. Okay. Now, there is a lot that is wrong in this situation. (laughs) Jacob gets married to two sisters, and that's not a good idea. But in fairness, it wasn't uh, Jacob's idea. He got tricked into it by his father-in-law. He wanted to marry Rachel. On his wedding night, he thought he was getting Rachel. His father-in-law, Laban, switched the deal. It's Leah there. He doesn't know. I guess it's dark. Maybe she's wearing a veil. Who knows? The first night nuptial rituals of the ancient world. Anyway, the next one he wakes up, wrong girl. Laban's trickery, and, but then Laban says, well, you can marry Rachel as well, do another seven years' work for me, you get both of them. Now, just as a kind of thinking this through, so we've got a polygamous situation, and I know that one of the things people can struggle with as they read the Old Testament is we have lots of polygamous situations described, men married to several or many women, and what we see as we read the Old Testament is that polygamy seems to be accepted, but was never in line with God's creation plan. It was always a falling short of what God had intended. 
And we see that once we get to Jesus and his teaching about divorce. In Matthew 19, Jesus says, when he's asked about divorce, haven't you read that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Two become one. Not three or four become one, but two become one. That was God's original creation plan. That's what Jesus refers to. That's what he points back to. And that, of course, becomes the model for what is normal, accepted practice in the church. And so by the time we get to the early church and read about requirement for those who are to serve in the church as elders... Part of that requirement, described in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 3, is that elders should only be married to one woman. They're meant to be one woman men. So uh, there's this shift from polygamy being accepted, but never God's creation plan, to not being accepted in the Christian era. And there are big theological reasons why polygamy is a bad idea. The, uh, The first, the big theological reason why polygamy is not a good idea is that Christ has one bride, not many brides. And human marriage is meant to point to and reflect in some way the marriage of Christ and his church. So uh, that kind of removes polygamy from the deal. There are also, of course, pragmatic, pragmatic reasons why polygamy is a bad idea. And we see that in this story, that it leads to divided love. There's rivalry. And there's this intense rivalry between these two sisters, Leah and Rachel. They engage in a kind of a fertility arms race. And Leah streaks ahead of her sister. She's the wife that Jacob didn't want, but she puts her sister in the shade because she's the one producing all the babies. And this is reflected in the names that she gives her sons, and uh, this first son, Reuben, which means he has seen my misery. And you've got to feel sympathy for Leah. She is the unloved wife. Her life has been miserable. She knows that Jacob never wanted her. He wanted the sister, and she's kind of landed in this relationship, and so her life has been miserable, and she hopes that by producing sons that she will earn the love of Jacob, and she names her children in that light. Now, Leah has the babies, and Rachel is not happy about this, and at first she blames Jacob, and she says to Jacob, give me children or I'll die. And Jacob gets angry with her about that, and with some justification, because it doesn't seem to be Jacob's fault that Rachel is not getting pregnant. There seems to be a biological reason, and Jacob is clearly not infertile. Leah's getting pregnant. But there's more than just biology going on here. Jacob reckons that God is sovereign. He's not in the position of God. Jacob says, who am I? Do I stand in the place of God? Now, a couple of observations we can make about this as we kind of unpack this a little bit. First one is that if you're childless and want children, that can stir extremely deep emotions. And this is something which I've often had to walk through with people in pastoral ministry, people, members of the church, and others who've contacted me who are desperate for children, can't have children, and the kind of emotions that can stir it can be extraordinarily painful. So that's one thing to see and kind of draw out from this story. Second thing to see, though, is that it's good to recognize and, and to learn to trust in the sovereignty of God, that God really is sovereign. 
And without materialistic worldview, we tend to think that we can fix every problem. And that is true when it comes to infertility. We think we can fix every problem. And to be honest, that leads to practices which are increasingly common in our society, which ethically are often actually very dubious as we try to kind of stand in the place of God, in a sense, and do things which ethically are very questionable. Now, Rachel obviously wouldn't have had our materialistic worldview, but she does something which is very ethically dubious. She says to Jacob, okay, I'm not getting pregnant, but here's my servant. Have my servant. Get her pregnant. And Bilhar, the servant, kind of belongs to Rachel. And so Bilhar's children will then be claimed as Rachel. You notice that it's Rachel who names the children, not Bilhar. And, uh, and so Rachel gets her wish. Bilhar has these two sons, Dan and Naphtali. But that doesn't help the situation with her sister at all. Because what then Leah does is give her servant Zilpah to Jacob as well. And then Leah starts shooting back up the baby league table as Zilpah starts popping out kids. And then you get this weird thing with the mandrakes. Give me your son's mandrakes. What's that all about? Well, mandrakes are strange plants, interesting plants. They, they have... They have roots that can look like human figures. And uh, in the Harry Potter stories, J.K. Rowling took the mandrakes and made them into screaming kind of uh, human-type figures. But the roots can look like human figures. And they also have hallucinogenic properties if you eat them. Um, have all kinds of strange effects. So probably this was considered a kind of f- a fertility drug. And so what Rachel is saying is, let me have the mandrakes, let me eat them, because this, this might be the thing which does the trick. This might be the breakthrough which causes me to get pregnant. What Rachel is doing is exploring every, op- every option to overcome her infertility. And again, this is something which I've walked through with lots of people, people who are struggling with fertility, walk- trying to work out, e- explore every option to overcome infertility. Now, in this case, this backfires badly because she gets the mandrakes, but the deal is that Leah gets to sleep with Jacob. Just as his family is seriously dysfunctional, you can sleep with him tonight if I get to have the mandrakes, And then, of course, Leah gets pregnant. The whole point is that Rachel wants to get pregnant, so she bargains for the mandrakes, and then her wretched sister is the one who gets pregnant, and round and round it goes. So we look at this from our perspective, and this this just looks so dysfunctional. You've got two competing sisters who seem to detest each other and are engaged in this bizarre baby war with one another, and then you've got two servants who've also been roped in, and they're producing babies, and we can think about what's going on with Jacob, and from one perspective, you might say, well, Jacob's living the good life. He's now got four women to sleep with, and he doesn't have to do much apart from sleep with them. The women do all the work, they produce the babies. From another perspective, you could look at Jacob and think, well, actually, he's not living the good life. He's just a kind of a pawn who has been manipulated even to the extent where one of his wives is kind of selling him to another of his wives for some mandrakes. The whole thing is just so dysfunctional. And there doesn't seem to be much reference to God and how they're proceeding. And when there is, the theology seems pretty distorted. Uh, in verse 17, um, uh, which one is it? Uh, Leah says, God has rewarded me for giving my servant to my husband. And I think, I'm not sure that God really is rewarding you for giving your servant to your husband. And that doesn't seem to quite fit what we know about God and what we understand about faithfulness and marriage and all the rest. But 
despite all this dysfunction, despite this poor theology, God is still in control. Verse 22, God remembered Rachel. He listened to her and enabled her to conceive. Now, I think there are some things for us to draw out from this. The first one is that God is able to overrule family dysfunction. And the, and the reality is that every family has some measure of dysfunction in it, and some families have profound dysfunction in them. And looking at Jacob's family, you'd say this is kind of in the profound dysfunction end of the spectrum. But God is very much working out his purposes through this family, despite this family. And so my encouragement to us is hold on to faith even in the face of family dysfunction. If you are in a situation in your family where there's obvious dysfunction or if you're involved in being a friend to helping, counseling, pastoring others who are experiencing family dis- dysfunction, kind of hold on to faith that God can still work, God can still move. The second thing that we can draw out from this is to see that fruitfulness really matters. These these women are desperate for children. And the more children they have, the better. And that's very different from how we think, or many people think in our context. In our context, people often are kind of, we feel guilt about environmental damage. And people talk in those terms that shouldn't have too many children because people cause environmental damage. Uh, Harry and Meghan, we're not going to have more than two children so as to not harm the planet any further. Of course, the reality is that in most of the countries, certainly all the countries in the West, the fertility rate, how many children we're having, is below the replacement rate. We're not having enough babies even to replace the existing population, never mind see the population grow. And theologically speaking, children are good, a gift from God. And spiritually, we are meant to desire fruitfulness. And so... Something we can draw from this story is that actually the kind of longing that Rachel and Leah have for children, although it seems to come out of dysfunction and there's so much that's distorted here, that desire for fruitfulness is itself good. And amongst us, there should be something of of Rachel's cry, give me children or I'll die. And I think one of the things I felt provoked with as I read this story again was provoked for us to make that cry, that spiritual cry, that we do need to have more children. We need to see more new spiritual babies being born. Now, it's great when physical babies are being born. We're all for fertility at Gateway Church. But the kind of fertility we should really desire is spiritual fertility, new life, spiritual new birth fertility. And I think God wants to put something in us again, that kind of cry of, God, give us children or we'll die. That we, why isn't the baptistry out more often? Why on Sundays are we not seeing every service people giving their lives to Christ? Why are there so few people on our If God Then What course? It should provoke in us a cry of, give us children or we'll die. That we really do want to see men and women who are far from God coming into relationship with him, being born again, being made new. We need to have that heartfelt spirit, desire for spiritual children. And I think that's something we need to feel provoked about. And this story provokes us in that. Second part of the story is equally weird. I'm not going to read the whole thing because of time. But it gets into this deal where Jacob has had enough 
of his father-in-law and wants to leave, but Laban, his father-in-law, says, well, stay and name your wages. And they do this deal where uh, Jacob's going to keep for the, the, the offspring of the sheep and the goats who are speckled and spotty. And, and they do this kind of, again, it's kind of a fertility arms race. Laban takes off then all the speckled and spotty sheep and says, okay, you have the rest. And, and it's kind of genetics that, of course, if you don't have speckled and spotty sheep mating with one another, you shouldn't get speckled and spotty sheep. But then Jacob engages in what seems to be a kind of fertility trick. He, it's one of the weirdest passages in the Bible. He whittles some sticks and places them in front of the watering troughs. And when the sheep and the goats mate in front of the sticks by the water troughs, they then produce offspring which are speckled and spotty and streaked, and they all become Jacob's. And you think, what is going on here? And the thing that's going on is it's not the sticks. It's not because of these whittled sticks that the sheep produce the kind of lambs that Jacob wants. It's actually because of God. And in the end, Jacob recognizes this himself. Genesis 31, verse 7, Jacob's talking to his wives, and he says to Leah and Rachel, your father's cheated me so many times. However, God has not allowed, harm to, allowed him to harm me. If he said the speckled ones will be your wages and all the flocks gave birth to speckled young, and if he said the street ones will be your wages and all the flocks bore street young, so God has taken away your father's livestock and has given them to me. Jacob tried to fix the fertility problem by kind of magic, whittling these sticks, putting them by the water troughs. The real reason that the right kind of sheep and goats were born, which came to Jacob, was because of God. It was because God was doing it. And we can read this passage and think it's bizarre and maybe even laugh at Jacob. What's he doing whittling sticks and putting them by the water troughs? That's not science. That's not how genetics works. But we can do that kind of, we can do the equivalent all the time. People are doing this the whole time, kind of whittling sticks. Superstitions and thinking that our skills, our, our actions, our decisions control stuff. Actually, what we need is a more robust understanding of God's sovereignty. That God is in control. And if we're going to prosper, it's because God deems that we prosper. God's the one who, in the end, determines what color the lamb is. It's God who is in control. And, and through this, and, and I was talking about this with Pete at lunchtime, he, he, he phrases this really well. Through this story, we see these different characters kind of pursuing, trying to define their identity. Jacob is trying to define his identity by achievement by getting the most flocks. And Leah is trying to define her identity by trying to earn, pursue Jacob's love, which is withheld from her. And Rachel and Laban, are, their identity seems to be in just control and manipulation. But God wants them to know who they are because of his grace. Jacob, Rachel, Leah, how are you going to survive? How are you going to thrive? How are you going to be blessed? In the end, it's because of God's grace and his sovereign plan. And what God wants them is, in a sense, what they want, although their wanting is distorted and dysfunctional. It's fruitfulness. It's fruitfulness. Verse 43, in this way, the man grew exceedingly prosperous, exceedingly prosperous, and came to own large flocks and female and male servants and camels and donkeys. Jacob despite all the dysfunction in his relationships, despite him trying to control things through magic tricks, all the rest, 
The thing is, the Lord blesses him and he becomes exceedingly prosperous. He becomes exceedingly fruitful. And then we get to where we finished the house of my name a couple of weeks back. And we get to the story of Hannah, who's also desperate for a child and comes to the tabernacle and makes this vow, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life. Again, it's this theme of fruitfulness. Hannah's absolute desperation for a son, just as Rachel and Leah have been desperate for children. And again, the Lord blesses and she's able to have a son and she has Samuel, the great prophet leader of the nation of Israel. Now, this year we are leaning into this theme of new adventures, new adventures of faith. And I do think that part of that should be this new desire in us for fruitfulness, that we should be those who are calling out to God like Rachel did, like Leah did, like Hannah did. God, give us children. Make us fruitful. Prosper us. And to see that is all of God's grace. We can't make it happen. We can't do magic trips. We might try. In the end, it's all about God's sovereignty and God's grace. And so we need to come to him with faith, as Pete was talking about this morning. Abraham-like faith about what God can do. The God who is able even to raise the dead to new life. And we should come to him with fervency and desire. Like Rachel, like Hannah, say, give me children or I'll die. Because we do want to prosper. Jacob became exceedingly prosperous. And our desire should be to be spiritually exceedingly prosperous. That we would start to see a harvest of souls, a harvest of men and women turning in faith to Christ, finding new life, being born again, being added to the family of God, being caught up in this great story. And it doesn't matter how dysfunctional somebody's background is, God can step in. If he could work in Jacob's family and do miracles through him, he can work in anybody's family and bring life into anybody's family. And so I'd like us to, to come back into worship. I'd like us to stand, Beth, and come back and lead us again. And just as uh, Beth and the band come to lead us, I'd just like us to call out to God, Lord, give us children or we'll die. But some of that fervency, pray, pray for... Pray for souls, pray for spiritual children, pray that God would cause new birth. We, we live in a, a society which has turned so far from God, where so few know Jesus Christ, and they need to. And we, we need to plead with the God of heaven, the God of Abraham, and the God of Jacob, the God of miracles, the God of grace, that in his mercy he would rescue, save, cause people to turn to him. So let's lift our voices and call out to the living God for that.